This episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast, is brought to you in partnership with Thermo Fisher Scientific. Thermo Fisher's cell therapy processing instruments are designed to help customers transition from process development to commercial manufacturing, utilized as standalone devices or integrated as part of a closed modular process. Thermo Fisher Scientific recommends Gibco CTS DynaSelect Magnetic Separation System, which is a next-gen cell isolation and activation instrument. Gibco CTS Xenon Electroporation System allows customers full control to optimize for a variety of cell types and payloads. And Gibco CTS Rotea Counterflow Centrifugation System is a closed cell processing system supporting a broad range of protocols for cell separation, washing, and concentration. Customers can rely on and streamline their drug development process with Applied Biosystems Qualtrac qPCR and dPCR quality control tools for robust and reliable genetic analysis across various phases of drug development, supported by relevant, compliant documentation. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and my guest for this episode is Dr. Andrew Scherenberg, CEO at Emoja Biopharma, and their technology programs of patients' T-cells against their cancer in vivo, which we'll unpack in just a second. But before we do, Andy, welcome to Cell and Gene, the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Appreciate the invite, and, and great to be here as well. Wonderful. Okay, so let's jump right in. First of all, briefly talk us through Emoja Biopharma. Talk us through your mission and your focus areas and anything you want our audience to know about the great work you're doing. I'll start with the name and, and maybe a little bit of the founding story, uh, Aaron. So we were sure. founded in 2019 and, and um, founding team was myself, Mike Jensen. And Mike has a, a long history in CAR T-cell immunotherapy. He's one of the pioneers and another colleague, uh, Phil Lau, along with a fourth colleague who came from the manufacturing side of, of the CAR T-cell field. And we were looking back at a decade of um, really transformative impact of CAR T-cell therapies, but also a limitation in, in getting these therapies out to, um, you know, as many patients as who might, uh, who might benefit from them as possible. And so Moja was formed with the mission of making, of bringing together the right technologies, the right team to make CAR T-cell therapies more accessible to more patients uh, in a nutshell. And what we arrived at was um, right now, CAR T-cell therapies are delivered through a logistically complex process. T-cells are taken from a patient, um, shipped to a central manufacturing facility where they're engineered into a cell product, brought back to the patient. And then in order to get them to expand and, and actually uh, become active in the patient, you have to give uh, lympho what's called lymphodepleting chemotherapy to the patient. That removes the patient's own T-cells and allows the incoming T-cells to have access to growth factors and cytokines so that they can expand and, and do their um, uh, intended uh, activity. And um, we've had, you know, you, you basically over the, your career in a field, you build a, a sense of the technology and the capabilities. And we felt there was a potential to actually create a new class of drug products based on lenoviral vector technology, which could be delivered directly to the patient and which would allow the patient effectively to do all that manufacturing in their own body. So it, it's a little bit like a, a synthetic immune response or an almost like a, a genetic vaccine instead of it, with a typical vaccine you deliver an antigen to a patient and the machinery of the immune system grinds that antigen up and it collects all the T cells that can recognize that antigen and it expands them into an immune response. In our case, what we do is we deliver our drug product to a patient. It actually binds a small population of T cells 
it genetically delivers the specificity for the tumor. But after that, um, the, those cells expand and do their thing, um, as far as we can tell, very much like a natural immune response. Excellent. Okay, thank you. And we're going to get deeper into that as we kind of go through this question set here in our, in our discussion. But um, first, uh, one of the things that Emoja is focused on is developing in vivo CAR T cell therapies and racer induced cytotoxic lymphocytes. So I want to talk a little bit more about that. But before we do, I want to hear from your, you know, professional and expert opinion, what are the limitations of ex vivo CAR T cell therapeutics? And because of that, what's the why behind in vivo for Emoja? Yeah, if you look at commercial CAR T cell products that are being used to treat patients right now, so these target antigens, CD19 for, for lymphomas and BCMA for multiple myeloma, all those require that the, the logistical complexity of, of having to collect T cells from a patient, ship them to a central manufacturing facility, bring them back, and then engraft them into the back into the that patient on top of lymphodepleting lymphodepleting chemotherapy. So the rationale right there is to, is to move away from that. That's expensive. Um, you have to have a, a manufacturer. It's really a service business more than a drug business, right? Because you have to have um, uh, uh, essentially a facility, a central facility staffed by expert people available all the time. And um, it ends up, you have to have manufacturing slots that have to be reserved. So um, that creates expense and complexity for the patient experience. Um, and in essence, all of that um, is what's addressed by the in vivo technology, um, which is you deliver um, in vivo to the patient's T cells, you, you deliver that card transgene all of that expansion happens in the patient's body. So effectively their body does the manufacturing and, and you've really simplified the, the, the um, process of delivery and, and ideally made a, just a much more seamless patient experience. Good. Okay. Thanks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the ISIL pro platform, excuse me. Um, generally, how does it fit into the development of Emoja's pipeline products? Yeah. So uh, again, it, it comes back to the, the, the founding mission of Emoja, which is to make CAR T cell therapies as broadly accessible as possible. When you have an in vivo approach, you're depending on the patient's immune system to be as functional as possible, right? You're delivering to the patient's own T cells. So the fitter and more active the patient's T cells are, the better the type of response you're going to get. And generally... Um, what you see in patients that go through rounds and rounds of chemotherapy is that the chemotherapy does target the tumor um, and it targets the tumor because tumor cells are actively proliferating. And, and, and very often the way that tumor is targeted through chemotherapy is by, by um, actually affecting the um, function of the DNA in, in proliferating cells because um, uh, DNA obviously has to replicate during cell proliferation. So, when you target uh, DNA, that, that's selective for, for tumor cells. But immune cells are also proliferating, not as fast as tumor cells. So when you give chemotherapy, you are definitely killing the tumor, but you're also harming the patient's immune system. So that through multiple rounds of chemotherapy, um, the function of a, a patient's immune cells is, is decremented over time. It's one of the reasons that over multiple, multiple rounds of chemotherapy, at some point, you've decremented the patient's immune function to the point that it can't contribute anything to tumor control. In that case, it would be very useful to have an off-the-shelf cell product. So our ISIL platform is, is refers to a class of cells that we call induced cytotoxic innate lymphocytes. And these are cells that we actually um, differentiate from a pluripotent stem cell. And so we have a very efficient process to take 
uh, a cell that can make any kind of cell in the, in the body. And we've engineered it in a way that we direct differentiation to a cytolytic cell type, which, which we call an ICIL. And the idea would be that we can make very large numbers of these ICILs um, uh, at very low cost. And then we have a strategy for engrafting those in a patient so that instead of having to rely on the patient's immune system, which um, in later stage cancer patients will not be as functional as ideal, we'll be able to actually have cell products that we would be able to deliver to those to those patients off the shelf. Almost the way to think about them would, would be like young cells um, that would be adapted and, and engineered to target their tumor to replace uh, immune functions that have been lost over the course of, of it, it, both chemotherapy and in some cases, tumors themselves will, will actually actively um, uh, decrement uh, a patient's uh, own uh, immune function as one of their adaptations to survive effectively in a patient. Sure. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about another of your really interesting projects in that you recently shared some new, like I said, incredibly interesting proof of concept, non-human primate data from your in vivo program. And I wanted to, I wanted you to be able to talk to us a little bit about that what is bring us up to speed and share with us where we are today yeah so um anytime uh, i think probably most of the listeners of the podcast will be aware uh, that as you move through clinical development you start in in simple systems to to develop a, a drug product usually you're starting in test tubes to make sure that your constructs function as intended they um, activate immune cells to target uh, uh, a cell that expresses a target antigen in vitro. We often then will move on to testing them in uh, humanized mouse models. And those models are a very useful place to test human-specific um, drugs. But what they lack is they don't have their own immune system. So that you're, for a, an in vivo product like ours, it's really an, a very artificial way to, to test. And, and I think there's real reservations uh, on the parts of um, you know, certainly investors, but I think, you know, regulatory authorities, is, is this actually going to work when you take it into an animal where the whole immune system is is there? So moving into a, a larger um, immunocompetent animal system was, was a very, very, for us, a signature part of the clinical development process for the VivoVec platform. So we've recently done that, as, as you alluded to, and, and we're able to present um, the first uh, three uh, animals that we um, treated with our uh, Avivovec drug product that encoded a chimeric antigen receptor that targets CD20. So CD20 is a surface marker on B cells. B cells are one of the most frequent types of blood cells that can transform into lymphoma or leukemia. And so we treated three animals and I, uh, several aspects of, of the data, are, I, I think, are, are really notable. One is that for the animals that got um, the, the full human target dose, all three had very similar responses. Um, within seven days, they had uh, completely all, all of their B cells had disappeared. So that's uh, uh, evidence of that, the, that there were CAR T cells circulating that were exhibiting CAR activity. And we saw very nice expansion of CAR T cells um, with peak um, concentrations in the blood that um, were met or exceeded benchmarks that had been established in the same model system for the ex vivo autologous um, kind of standard commercial engineering process. So we used a model system where people had tested before the process where you collect T cells to um, engineer them outside and bring them back on top of lymphodepleting chemotherapy. And what we showed was that our in vivo approach met or exceeded the benchmarks for 
um, the amounts, the numbers of CAR T cells that were generated and the kinetics of B cell depletion. So I don't think anybody really expected that you would be able to see the robustness and consistency of response that we demonstrated. And that's, um, that was one of the areas of impact. And then in one of the animals, we had a really um, uh, interesting observation that, um, so in, in any uh, system like this, you get CAR T cells for a period of time. And then once um, they, they run out of antigen, those CAR T cells actually will go back into quiescence. And um, what you're hoping is that if there's in a patient with a tumor, you hope the tumor is fully gone. But if the tumor comes back, you're hoping that there might be a memory response that can then re-expand those CAR T cells and, and ideally maintain tumor control. And what we saw in one of the, the uh, animals was that when the, the animal's natural B cells started to return through the normal process of blood differentiation, we actually had a secondary expansion of CAR T cells indicative um, uh, of that animal, at least. Um, showing a, a, a capturing memory, essentially memory T cell bio biology through the in vivo approach. They, they show what appeared to be a memory T cell response, which isn't something that's been observed with the ex vivo autologous CAR T cell approaches. Now it's very early, so we don't know how frequently we'll, we'll be able to see that or whether there were factors in the way we administered, um, you know, the particles to that particular um, uh, animal. So, um, you know, we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, over time with larger numbers of, of animals and also what happens when we, when we move into the, the human system. But I think it speaks to the, the data um, collectively speak to the fact that in vivo, in my mind, is absolutely going to work. I think we're seeing that um, in, in, in how the data has been received and that it has the opportunity to capture really unique biology that's not captured by the current um, standard ex vivo approaches. Yeah, sure. And we're following you along as this goes. And so certainly we invite you to come back in, you know, six months a year to certainly tell us how this has been successful and has progressed so we'll we'll be checking back in for sure and having you back on the pod to talk about all the successes um, i want to look i want to talk a little bit about the climb so for our listeners uh the climb is the colorado laboratory and innovation manufacturing building which is emojis lentiviral vector development and manufacturing facility so uh andy talk us through First of all, the why behind the decision to build your own in-house facility. Yeah, so uh, the, the climb came out of uh, our experience in in um, early 2020. So we were founded at the very end of, of uh, 2019. And when we were um, moving into 2020, I think our, our goal was to, to work with outside um, contract manufacturing organizations. But of course, at that point in time, um, with COVID, when, when you're making a very complicated new biologic like ours, to work effectively with another organization, you have to have people in the same plant working together closely. Um, there's just too many new things to be able to transmit every detail of a protocol um, you know, verbally over a Zoom, for example. And we were finding that that we simply weren't um, uh, able to, to, to work effectively in, under COVID restrictions. And we had no understanding of what the timeline for for those you know how long that was going to last so that was a big impetus for for creating our own manufacturing building and i think what we've realized out of that also is that um with a new class of drug product being able to own the entire supply chain from all of the technology all the way through manufacturing where there's a lot of innovation that can happen as well that's an incredibly comforting um story to be able to tell a partner that is they're not coming to us just for um, technology. They're coming to us for technology where we can take, let's suppose we're partnering with another group that wants to utilize our VivoVec platform to deliver their car. 
They give us their car. We can incorporate it into our Vivovec platform and then deliver them back drug product, which they can then take into clinical testing. There's not a third party that has to be involved that would then generate and make their product. So what we found is that the climb is an amazing asset for us in terms of having discussions with partners. And it also provides us a lot of flexibility to rapidly iterate our technology uh, as we go forward with cell and gene therapy products. Um, you know, you, you start to see this a little bit as you move from small to large molecules, every step from a small molecule, there's not so many changes you can make in the small molecule, right? With a larger molecule, you can, you can do more things. People are now doing bispecifics and all kinds of more complex um, hybrid molecules. And with cell and gene therapies, you have, you have even more little um, levers you can tweak that modify the properties or which help you adapt that, um, that drug product to be more effective. And you can iterate and make those changes when you have your own manufacturing much more rapidly than you can with a, a contract manufacturer where every change might be a six month delay because you have to wait for a new slot to be available. So from a flexibility standpoint and, and because of the COVID restriction just made a lot of sense for us. And, and, and again, it's turned into a fantastic asset for us um, in terms of discussions with business development partners as well. Yeah, sure. And, uh, and we've heard the same exact sentiment from other uh, companies, cell and gene therapy developers who have certainly decided to for you know, the reasons that made the most sense to them, but they mirror what you were saying about building their own in-house facility. So everything we, everything you're saying rings true. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, when you're talking about the scope of manufacturing and the scope of, like you said, owning the supply chain end to end, what is the CLIMB's plan for when it comes to vector manufacturing, process development, and even drug production capabilities into the, say the next, you know, five years or so. Well, I should, I should actually uh, invite you to, to talk to my colleague, Ryan Christman, who's our chief technology officer and who, who's the guy that um, was a key impetus for building the facility and is now, you know, um, neck deep in, in getting it operational. But um, in essence, it, it's, um, it's allowed us also to have a few other unique aspects of uh, a working model. So for our first few products, the team that has is doing the process development will be the same team that's doing the manufacturing. So that's one real value add of doing that. As we begin to move more products into that facility, those will become separate. But for the first few products, it's really nice to have the comfort of having the people who really know every detail of not just the, the mechanics of the process, but the molecular biology of the process being the same people who are in charge of the manufacturing. They've done every step a gazillion times. So when you move into manufacturing, they're intimately familiar with it. That's a unique aspect of, of what the climb offers us. As we move forward, our goal will be that, that, um, that the, the climb is effectively a complement to technology. So a, a standard CDMO has a manufacturing facility. They're depending on you to deliver them a recipe for, for baking in that facility, basically. In our case, we have a technology solution for delivering a car in an economical off-the-shelf method. That's our, our Vivovec platform. And we have a manufacturing facility, which is e expert in making that very complex drug product. So if you look at a lenovirus vector particle, right, it's a lipid envelope particle inside of which is a protein shell around mRNA genomes, but included in that are also um, transfer RNAs that help to prime reverse transcription and polymerases, proteases, and things like that. So it's a multi-component particle. A lot of things are going on in a lenoviral particle. It's, it, they're super complicated drug products. So having all the expertise in both the vector side of it to make sure that the, the vector itself is correctly designed, and then a manufacturing process that we've vetted and, and tested through multiple iterations of, of different payloads, 
all those types of things are are the vision for the climb so that the climb becomes essentially an asset where partnered products um, are man- manufactured um, at, a, at a margin that we can sustain because we have unique technology we're putting in, right? We're not bringing just manufacturing expertise. We're bringing technology expertise together with manufacturing expertise. So um, we can work on partnered products. We can work on our own products. And then the climb has also been designed in a flexible way so that it can be expanded for commercial production. So if you have something that looks incredibly promising, um, you can then expand the climb for pr- commercial production and you don't have to move between buildings. One of the pe- people actually don't realize it, but one in with complex drug products like viral vectors, moving a, the manufacturing process to a new building can be a very a major risk point. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to build out in the other half of the building, uh, a commercial manufacturing facility, and then have everything happen in one building it, it is also something that is for particularly a large pharma partner, something that's very reassuring. We'll certainly probably look at trying to move it outside of our building, but to have the option where they don't have to is is another part of uh, the value add. So if you look five years down the road, if I had my, um, if, if the vision were perfectly realized, we'd have a commercial production process in the, what I believe is the west end of the building, along with, um, you know, the the east end of the building, uh, essentially working on multiple partnered and wholly owned products, each of which um, adds an increment of innovation as it moves into the clinic. Great. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about vector manufacturing specifically, um, but but broadly speaking, uh, in addition to what you're experiencing at the climb, but also just based on your expertise anyway, when it comes to quality and processing, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges facing vector manufacturing? I think it's experience, actually, right? These are new, The certainly for lenoviral vectors. I think you're starting to build up industry experience for um, AAV vector systems um, as um, you know, you, you've had a number of projects that have moved from academia where a lot of these things started into uh, biotechnology firms where then individual teams were built up in, in multiple places and people began to accumulate um, experience. And now you're starting to see that, that experience diffuse into the CDMO industry. We're a little bit earlier in lenoviral vectors because there just hasn't been as much of a, um, a focus on lenoviral vector technology as broadly, at least, um, as there was for, for AAV initially. But I think that the hardest thing is to have enough experience to know um, you know, where the the friction points are so that when you're developing a process um, and you're having an issue with it, you you know what to do in order to, to fix it. And that just that reflects um, experience with the upstream production processes, with the cells, how you um, uh, deliver the, the plasmids or, or the, the type of producer cell line you use for generating particles even moving on to the downstream purification processes. So when you have experience and you've done, you know, three, four, five, six, 10, 20 different types of um, payloads, you get a feel for where the, you know, what goes wrong and when, and you can very quickly adjust and, and adapt. And if you have a less experienced team, they have to go through a DOE. Or they're going to spend more time doing that. And we all know that the more, you know, the more time you spend, the more money you're burning. And of course that then, you know, creates challenges for, for you know, for, for any organization that's living on a limited amount of cash. Sure. Okay. Um, finally, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, with never to wish time away, but we're, before we know it, 2023 is going to be behind us and we're going to be looking at 2024. So what does 2024 look like for Emotion Biopharma? Well, I think um, 
we see it is we see ourselves just in in a in a great position i would say um you know if we go back uh a year um or two years right we had closed our our series b in the early part of of 21 and and we spent really the last two years executing on the the plan behind that series b building the climb advancing our platforms and moving our um uh, in, in particular, a lead program through preclinical proof of concept in, in large animals. So that's put us in position to to interact and have productive discussions with business development partners. So um, as I look into 24, I, I, I look forward to productive interactions with um, with several partners. I look forward to us moving into the clinic ourselves and beginning to generate clinical data from um you know, certainly one, perhaps as many as uh, three different programs uh, through, you know, at least into early, uh, late 24, early 25. So it's really a a signature year for us in terms of moving from a lot of development or earlier, I would, you know, discoveries slash development work into the clinic and and clinical development, as well as maturing as an organization. So um, with the climb coming online, um, we're also actually, um, uh, consolidating our Seattle operations into uh, one building. So you'll uh, hopefully, and the, you and the readers can chuckle. So uh, we have the CLIMB, Colorado Laboratory and Innovative Manufacturing Building. Um, I'm hoping that we will call the Seattle building the Seattle Knowledge and Innovation Center. So we'll have the CLIMB building and the Ski Center reflecting the um, the outdoor ethos of, of our workforce and, and founding team. Um, so, um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's a lot of other business process development that that's uh, going on, uh, as well. So we're, you know, you, when you move to GMP manufacturing, there's a number of informatics systems that you have to put in place. We have a fantastic informatics team that's, that, um, has, um, put in place a really holistic way of collecting data and making sure that we can track all the different things that we're doing. Um, we're maturing our GNA processes and, and moving over to, um, systems that give us, um, better, uh, real-time business data. So the organization itself is maturing this year and will continue to mature through next year. And um, it's it's really fun as a, a CEO, particularly one coming from the academic side like me, to see what the capabilities are uh, of an organization, of a biotech organization that that brings the level of sophistication that we have to kind of each of the elements of, of a business, not just the, the technology on the R&D side, but to all aspects of what you need to do to really execute as, as, a, as a firm. Oh, for sure. End to end, for sure. When it comes to emotion, that's kind of the, the takeaway that I have I've learned from this discussion. So and I look forward to having you and or your colleagues on next year to, to kind of talk through the progressions that we've made in that time. Um, we're at the end of the episode. And at the end of the episode, I like to talk to my guests about who they are when they're not, you know, in the process of making and manufacturing and commercializing life's, you know, life saving therapies. So uh, my question for you is, what would you say is the best movie you've watched ever or recently, last few years? What would no, you say? Great question. So anybody who knows me will will know that I love science and, and enjoy um, not just life sciences, but kind of all aspects of it. Uh, I'm going to point to not a movie necessarily, but it was a, a discovery feature on whales talking about some of the um, advances that have been made in understanding the fact that whales have unique cultures, um, you can see them transmitted socially. 
the episode I saw focused on uh, orcas and looked at how orcas off the coast, there are orca pods that sit off the coast of different countries that have different hunting cultures. And um, I thought for me, that was really fascinating. And I say that as a, a tie-in because I think one of the really um, uh, fascinating aspects of some of the advances we've seen in, in AI is the ability for AI to be able to help us interpret very large data sets. And um, as uh, we've got gained a better understanding of whale culture, we can start to correlate whale culture and behavior with the sounds they make, there's a, a I think an, an increasing optimism in the in the community, and this this was actually the subject of a recent New York, New York Times article that I mentioned earlier um, about potentially using AI as a way to translate and allow interspecies communication. So for me, that was it was wonderful to see I think a recognition that that whales really are unique sentient beings with actual culture, and to contemplate the potential for actually being able to communicate with them uh, in the near future. So I'll highlight that as one of the most uh, exciting things that. And really, and entertaining as well, because you really appreciate um, uh, the the you know kind of the what, what you see in these the, the analogies with your own life, interacting with your own kids, the play, the family culture, all those types of things when you see it live in in, um, in whales as well and another species. Oh, for sure, it's absolutely fascinating, and um, I'm definitely going to recommend this to my children who are love absolutely love those kind of documentaries. And uh, certainly, you make a great point about the AI. Uh, portion of this and you know the sort of the connections we can make uh, sometimes I, AI doesn't always have a great reputation it's not the, the most perfect thing science in the world but it's absolutely there's a, a ton of benefits and this could certainly be one of them to your point so um, we're definitely going to check that out for sure great Okay. Enjoy. I hope they enjoy it. You'll have to let me know if uh, if I come on again. And and again, I'd encourage you. I think you'd really enjoy talking uh, to our CTO, as I mentioned, and maybe even uh, David Fontana, who's um, our head of business development on the partnering side. He's got some real interesting insights into the the business aspects of how we're proceeding. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no question. And in, in some way, shape, or form, we will be talking to your colleagues. Uh, either on the pod, perhaps even on a selling gene live, which is uh, if our listeners don't already know there are our live events are essentially webinars, educational webinars, uh, and or or in written content on selling gene. So no shortage of ways to uh, learn from the you and your colleagues and what's going on in Moja for sure. All right, listeners, that wraps up this episode of Cell and Gene, the podcast featuring Emoja Biopharma's Dr. Andrew Scharenberg. Andy, thank you for your time. This was a great episode and our listeners have gleaned a ton of great information from it. So thank you. Likewise, really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on and, and look forward to returning at some point in the future. Perfect. Thank you too for listening listeners and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>